Happy Father's Day to all of you fathers out there and to some of the moms who take on more of a fatherly role for whatever reason. Today, we're going to continue our series in the book of Habakkuk, which we've called When God Talks Back. It is this robust conversation between God and Habakkuk. And for the first two chapters of the book of Habakkuk, we have seen this dialogue between God and this minor prophet as they have talked back and forth where Habakkuk complains to God about the reality or the the idea that God is being inactive when it comes to bringing judgment upon Judah and all the sin that they're doing. And then Habakkuk continues to complain to God after God responds and says, I'm going to bring judgment against them. I'm just going to use the Babylonians. Today, we're going to hear Habakkuk speak to God and speak about God's magnificence and his glory. The world is in a really rough place right now uh, in many different ways, one being physically. There's a pandemic that is this constant threat uh, of uh, contracting a virus that people can get that then can become very sick and possibly die. Economically, as much of the infrastructure, entertainment, and way of doing life that we have been so used to has been halted because much of what we do tends to be in larger groups of people. And spiritually, as many people have abandoned not only belief in God, but reliance and acknowledgement of the sovereignty and control that God has over this world. There are two ways of looking at this world. One, that everything here is by chance, and that it is all accidentally working together by some cosmic lottery that people can communicate, create technology that furthers our existence, and that we are in this constant state of bettering ourselves through trial and error. Or we can look at the world through the lens of what God says, that God created the heavens and the earth, that he formed man and woman in his own image, that we rebelled against him, and that he created a rescue plan that is not about making us better people, but a chosen people adopted by God through the work and sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To believe that things don't happen randomly, but are under the ultimate power and plan of God, who holds all things together by the word of his mouth, believing that there is a plan that's unfolding, that is documented in the word of God, and we continue on in our current lives as we head towards the end of times, when Jesus Christ will come back to judge the living and the dead. And depending on how you view this world with either faith in mind that I just mentioned, that by faith, when I say faith, I mean one that requires a belief of something unseen or yet unrealized, that both of the worldviews that I just talked about require faith. You will live your life according to which belief system you have. Decisions you make will be based on your beliefs in mind, even if they aren't always completely consistent with what you claim you believe. So as we read this today, I hope that we don't see what Habakkuk points out as something that we hope God would miraculously do again, but that God has been doing consistently since the beginning of time. So let's jump into verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shijanath. This verse begins with what many call a transition. God and Habakkuk had been going back and forth in this robust dialogue, and here we have Habakkuk praying. Not just talking, but praying to God. And we'll see that he does it in a way that isn't necessarily how we all do it. But I don't want us to take the order of the prayer as the point. But I want you to take notice of what God says to Habakkuk, or what Habakkuk says to God in this prayer. 
and how he communicates and paints this beautiful picture of who God is. Commentators disagree exactly on what is meant by the Shijanath. It was an instrument that is referenced one other place in the Bible as a heading in Psalm chapter 7. So the actual meaning and purpose is really not known, but many assume it meant that this prayer was sung when read aloud to others. So if you wouldn't mind, would you open your Bible? Would you point to this first verse in Habakkuk chapter 3? And would you sing with me at home? Are you ready? <clears throat> I'm just kidding. No, there's no way I'm going to sing. I sound like a gopher chewing on tinfoil when I sing. So for some of you that are good at singing, feel free to sing this. But let's just keep reading. Verse 2. Lord, Habakkuk says, I have heard your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Let me read this verse in another translation. That was in NIV. Let me read it in NASB just to help us understand a bit of what he is communicating. Here's what it says in the translation of New American Standard. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk begins with, I have heard of what you've done, of your fame, your reputation. It precedes you, and I fear you. I stand in awe of your majesty. I stand before you, floored by your glory, because God you are more awesome than anything this world has to offer because you are the creator of everything that I have ever seen, that I have ever experienced. God, you are the only thing that is truly awesome. The word awesome is an adjective. It, uh, the definition in Webster's Dictionary says extremely impressive or daunting, inspiring great admiration, apprehension, or fear. God, you are the only entity that deserves my internal and complete reverence because you, God, are that awe-inspiring. I don't know about you, but it is very rare that I feel this way towards God, unfortunately. There are glimpses, but that isn't normally found during a church service or while reading my Bible. It's usually experienced personally when I reflect on, on God after a trial or through a difficult circumstance where God showed himself oh so subtly and worked through the circumstance to bring glory and put on display God's sovereign will and his goodness. We talk a lot about how God uses circumstances to sanctify his people. But have you ever thought that the trials and circumstances that we go through are used to display God's bigness, God's glory through his sovereign control and involvement in our lives? We all want more of God, at least I think we do. We want blessings, but the blessings that we truly yearn for are not monetary or pleasure-inspired. They are more of God's presence. They are more of Him. When we are in need, we need Him more than we should want anything that's material. So what does Habakkuk ask for? He begins with admiration of God. He begins with the reality that he knows that God's fame proceeds him and that his words and actions are more important than anyone else's. Now Habakkuk begins with a petition, but one that I think is way more profound than most of us realize. So what does he say? He says, I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. 
Repeat them. Revive your work, O Lord. Whatever you do, Lord, keep doing what you choose to do is what Habakkuk is communicating. Because you, Lord, you who knew, know exactly the amount of hairs on my head to what's happening in the farthest part of the solar system, you, Lord, know what you're doing. So please, God, repeat your work. Lord, please do what you will because you, Lord, who I believe is awesome, who I know to be perfect, you, Lord, have your way. Your way, not my way, is what Habakkuk is communicating. What a turn of events. Habakkuk, who was just two chapters before complaining to God for not doing anything about Judah's sin, and then God decides to use the Chaldeans or the Babylonians to bring judgment against Judah. And then what does Habakkuk do? He argues with God about how he brings judgment. And yet here Habakkuk has come full circle. He has argued with God and God didn't just hand him truth that he couldn't argue with. God showed him who he was and is and will always be. And Habakkuk's response is to want nothing more or less than what God's will is. And he wants God's will to be done. Church, I have to admit, I don't do this. I don't look to God and say, your will and glory is more important than what I want and think. Time and time again, if I'm real, I pursue my own agenda, thinking about ways that I can somehow manipulate God to give me what I want. I can't see you, but are you nodding? Or am I the only one who does this? Like, I refrain from sin so that God will almost owe me. Do you know what I mean by this? Like when I'm thinking about some circumstance and I want to sin, there's some temptation to sin. I refrain from it with the hope that God then will give me what I want. It's stupid. It's spiritually bankrupt, but it's something that reminds me that I haven't arrived or fully embraced the gospel because I still act like my relationship with God is transactional rather than grace produced. Since I'm confessing stuff and I have a list But there is something that came up in a conversation that I had with someone this week that I want to bring up. Listen, the gospel is all God and none of me. But it took God bringing me into this circumstance, the office that I currently sit sit in at the church that I'm currently a pastor at, Church of the Valley, to give me the opportunity and the responsibility to be the lead shepherd of this church, a 65-year-old church the leader of a church plant at the same time of a church plant that was roughly 65 days old and being a part of watching God merge the two completely different communities for the glory of his name. The churches were built from different foundations. They were built by different types of leaders with different types of people coming together. And it was hard. It was hella hard. Can I say that? I'm from Northern California. Possibly outside of experiencing my mom die when I was eight years old or my oldest daughter having an uncontrollable seizure in front of my wife and I for 30 minutes. The merging of this church in the first year of being here was probably the hardest time in my life. And even though God did some amazing work in the people of COV, it hasn't been all cake pops and frappuccinos. It's been hard. But you know what? God knows what he's doing the whole time. He never wavered. He was never surprised by someone's reaction. God never lost hope that he would be glorified through the story and the work through Church of the Valley. And in all of this, the thing that he produced in me 
was more of him and less of me. He produced the blessing of his presence through the need and reliance that so many of us have had to have upon him. And that story, that story's not done being written. And that's what this pandemic reminds me of. It's almost as if God prepared us for the most widely spread pandemic in all of history through difficult circumstances and growth in his people. And his people at Church of the Valley have been able to care for one another and be part of God's church like never before. I prefer meeting together on a Sunday morning, if I'm real. I prefer giving hugs to people when I meet them or when I see them for the first time on a Sunday. I, I really miss preaching and hearing either Scott or Janet or maybe even Kevin say amen. I miss singing worship together, standing, sitting, kneeling, passing the microphone around as we share takeaways, having the campus be full and vibrant and having different things happening throughout the week. I prefer that. But you know, these playlists don't suck. It's pretty high praise, right? Community groups on Zoom, even though Zoom fatigue is a real thing, I wonder what we would have done if this was 1997. Would we fax one another our sermon takeaways? It's all God, none of me. Worshiping in our homes isn't the same, but you know what? When I get to sing at the top of my lungs in my home, my kids are the only ones who judge me. And takeaways? Are you kidding me? If you have been on the call, you know what I'm talking about. It's probably the most COV thing that we get to do, where 30 to 50 different participants all sit on a video chat and they share their takeaway when called on. And it helps encourage and teach one another what they heard from the sermon and through the playlist. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. And all of it isn't about preference because it's definitely not my preference. But you know what? It's for God's glory. Lord, do your work because your work is better than my preference. Your plan is better than my preference. And to, to no matter what, God, please get all the glory. I listened to a sermon that I did about eight years ago. And you know what? Uh, I was pretty full of myself. And not only that, it was pretty compelling. See what I did there? But you know what I really hadn't been tested in as I was speaking to thousands of college students in Orange County at a school? That I hadn't been tested as a pastor. I had the title, but I wasn't shepherding people the way that I am now. People's souls were not a pri priority like they are now. Sure, I wanted people to get saved, but that's child's play for God. He can use me. He can use you. He can use a song on the radio for that. But now myself and Pastor Mike and the rest of the elders, we get to care for souls. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that are under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. Not because you have to, but because you are willing, because our will is aligned with God's will in loving his people, being conduits of grace. Why? So we'll get glory? He Heavens no. So he'll get glory. 
so God will be glorified, so that God's goodness will be put on display, so the world will see Jesus for who he is, the perfect Savior and Lord who rescues and redeems and sanctifies his people. Verse 2 of Habakkuk, the second part, I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. I want to get to this point that Habakkuk is explaining as he's praying to God. I want to get to the place where I can say, God, I know there is a pandemic. I know that the world seems to be on fire, that there is injustice in the streets, that politics and politicians seem out of their minds. I know that money is funny. I know that fear is around every turn. But God, no matter what, I want you to do what you choose to do because I trust that your will and your plan and your work is all that matters. I want to get to that place. I want to be there, but I'm not always, if I'm real. How about you? Habakkuk says, in wrath, remember mercy. This almost sounds like Habakkuk is trying to remind God of what he already knows. At first glance, it sounds almost patronizing. Don't forget your lunch, baby Jesus. But that isn't what Habakkuk is saying. He's stating that w- something that he knows about God. That with God's wrath, which is required against sin, that God does show mercy. He doesn't always give everyone what they deserve. It is easy to attempt to itemize circumstances to when you think God should do something or shouldn't do something, but in his character, he is wrathful against sin while still being merciful. It doesn't seem like the two things can go together, but they do when it comes to him perfectly in the triune God that we worship. He brings wrath against our sin while offering amnesty from death in Jesus Christ. And his wrath is not out of hate for the perpetrator, but out of love and care he has for people's salvation. Let me say that again. His wrath is not out of hate for the perpetrator, but out of the love and care he has for people's salvation. Being a parent, especially a father, has taught me a lot about how God views us. I don't love my children perfectly like God loves us. I am in no way a perfect father, but I will say this. My children's well-being, their joy, their safety, and their opportunity for a relationship with Jesus Christ is far more important to me than anything else when it comes to them. For years, people have asked me, Tim, how can I pray for you? And my answer has always been the same that Reagan and Lorelai and Evangeline in Boston would come into a personal and passionate relationship with Jesus Christ by any means necessary. God used circumstances and a very soft heart to rescue Lorelai at a very young age. And she was the first baptism that I personally got to be a part of at Church of the Valley where Aaron and I baptized her back in 2018. And then there's Reagan, who reminds me a lot of me. She definitely wants to know more about why things are the way that they are. But God used a true work of himself. He truly 
challenged and changed her over a certain amount of time where he rescued her last year. And it was obvious that he was at work in her and in her life. And then we got to baptize her as a proclamation of a commitment to God. And I have Evangeline, my youngest daughter, Evie, and I have my only son, Boston, who are yet to make a confession of faith, but I see God doing things in both of them in his timing. And I am so grateful that their mother and other people in our community point our children towards Jesus. But the prayer by any means necessary, that's a scary one. Because sometimes that isn't because of a soft heart that someone comes into a relationship with God. Sometimes God uses circumstances of a really hard season where people run from God and they run and they do all of these things to try to find satisfaction that isn't God. And then eventually they circle the wagons and they come back to the realization that the only thing that can satisfy is Jesus Christ. So in God's wrath against sin, God provides a way out, not from the physical consequences of poor decisions in this life, but the eternal detour of a relationship with God for eternity. It's interesting that Habakkuk says, in your wrath, remember. I'm going to keep being real in the sermon. If I'm really real, I am so full of myself. To say, Lord, in your wrath against my sin, remember all the sermons that I've preached. Or all the time that I take with you each day. Remember all the people I influence for you. And you know what is psycho about all of that? God doesn't need me to do any of it. Nor should I act as if anything I do for him is because he needs it. I don't need to say, Lord, in your wrath, remember my good deeds. I, like Habakkuk, need to say, Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. Because I have nothing to bring to the table that is of any worth outside of Jesus and what he has done for me in his perfect life lived, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his triumphant resurrection from the dead. But the second element of this prayer, as Habakkuk is praying, is remembrances. He remembers, verse 3 to verse 15, he remembers God's works and he praises God because of it. And one great part of this prayer is praise. And praise is based on remembering what God has done and is doing. And in verse 3, it says, God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. Habakkuk is remembering what God has done and he is praising God for his past work. The city of Taman, a region in northern Odom, south of the Dead Sea, and Mount Paran, a wilderness where Mount Sinai is, where God had given Moses the Ten Commandments written on tablets, where God spoke with Moses and the Israelites were afraid to meet with him. But of these examples where God has been represented, he is representing his covenant that he has with his people, that they would be his people and he would be their God. The thing with a covenant, though, is it isn't based on how good we are. It can't be because we're not good. But God, in his new covenant that we as Christians have with God, it is based on Jesus. We put all our effort, we put all our faith, we put all our devotion, we put all our love, and we place it on him and through him and because of him. 
That is the simple fact that those who don't know Jesus don't understand. We place our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why we remind us each week that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's why we point everything to Jesus. He is our right standing, not what we do, but what he's already done to make us righteous, to make us right with God. At the beginning of the sermon, I said that I hope we don't view this as hoping that God would do something again, but that we can understand that God is doing something continuously. God makes a covenant with his people that is, and that, that covenant with his people is still happening today when we bow our will to God. He adopts us into his family and we are signed and sealed by him and in him and for him. God's majesty is still on display today through the work of Jesus Christ and that we by faith can receive and the continued work of the Holy Spirit in those who have been redeemed by God. Habakkuk gives us some context to God who has been in these places where miraculous things have taken place through his power. And then Habakkuk says, his glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. God's glory being on display, which creates a response from his creation of praise, is something that is designated just by God and for God alone. Verse 4, his splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. In Exodus chapter 34, we read that after Moses had met with God at the top of Mount Sinai, and he had, came, he had come back down to speak with the Israelites, that his face was full of light. It, it shone. Let me, let me read it to you. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 30, it says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. As Moses came down the mountain, his face had this radiance that had been reflected on to him from the glory of God, and it was this light that Habakkuk refers to as a light that's like sunrise. All of what Habakkuk is describing can point back to God communing with Moses as God gave Moses and the Israelites his law, the way in which that we as a people could love God back. And God took these people through the desert. He was a glorious light. A, it was a Shekinah glory who would bring light by night and shade by day. Shekinah, a word that never comes up in the Bible, but is this old Hebrew term that was used by rabbis to, and it was defined as caused to dwell. It signified what was a divine visitation of the presence or dwelling of God on this earth. In Exodus chapter 13, 20 through 22, it says this, After leading, leaving Sokoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them, and on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar or cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. 
God's presence, his Shekinah glory, his dwelling was available to see and experience. But with that, I want to take you to a very personal exchange between God and Moses. And I'm not going to read all of it, but Moses is very excited to see God, to experience God. And yet God tells him what it is and isn't physically possible because of God's radiance. In chapter 33, verse 18 through 23, then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, it will cause all my goodness, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on the rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. I love this dialogue between God and Moses. But I want to point something out. Even Moses couldn't see God's face to face. So God would have to shield us from a direct and unencumbered face-to-face. Why? Because of God's holiness and our sinful nature. As we have said before, his wrath on sin must happen because his purity means nothing impure can be in his presence. He's too pure and our sin is too impure. But that doesn't mean we don't see his glory. It doesn't mean that we don't have a veiled or hidden way of seeing God in this life. We see the effects of God. We see the work of God. We see the glory of God, his Shekinah glory, the manifestation of his dwelling. But to see his face to face in this life, we cannot do so and live. But you know who who we can see, who we can experience, who we can look to? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. All of God's glory is found in Jesus. He is the exact representation. Jesus is God with skin. He is, as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image. He is the photograph, the exact representation of God, which Colossians, where Paul says in chapter 2 verse 9, that for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So we as Christians adopted by God in a new covenant relationship with God, we get to be saved by Jesus through his work, through his power, through his perfection. And so we as Christians, which means little Christ, get to point all the glory, all the testimony, all the praise back to Jesus. As long as Jesus gets the glory, we are in God's will. Meaning we don't take credit for ourselves nor do we attempt to do things that bring praise to man or further our agenda. It's all about Jesus and his glory being seen. Verse 5 of Habakkuk 3. Plague went before him, pestilence followed his steps. Seems a bit of a downer, right? Wrong. 
Habakkuk is continuing to make the case for God's power and his judgment. In his wrath, he remembers mercy and salvation, but he also has agents of wrath that he has brought in the past, which he continues to use for his glory. God does not leave sin unpunished. Either we pay for it with our lives, or it is completely given to God's only son, Jesus, on the cross where he took on the full wrath of the Father for yours and my sin. So why are we so focused on the gospel at COV? Because the answer to racism, the answer to this pandemic, the answer to alcoholism, substance abuse, lust, anger, fear, pride, hatred, bigotry, are all found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The answer to all of our sin is found in a person who loved us when we were at our worst. Jesus didn't wait for us to get it. Jesus didn't wait for us to be more holy. Jesus didn't wait for us to love people correctly. Jesus intervened in the brokenness of our humanity, and he gives us a new heart, a new life, a new spirit that we would walk in his will, pointing the beauty and the glory and the truth back to him. Verse 6, he, God, stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. I don't know how you see God. I don't know how much you itemize God in three persons, but here is what I know. Jesus is God with skin who sent us his spirit so that we who have truly repented, if we have truly been born again, if we have truly been made new, we can live in the hope and the reality that God isn't a distant God, that he is powerful and he is majestic, who shakes the earth with his glory, who can make any nation or army tremble with fear. He can destroy the mountains in an instant while bringing peace to the lonely. There is nothing bigger or greater than our God. There is nothing small enough or insignificant enough that God doesn't want to be involved with it in his creation and with his children. God is the Alpha and Omega, but he's a peaceful, loving father at the same time. I want to point out one final thing that I haven't spoken about until now, because I want us to take this with us. Who's saying all of this? Who wrote this prayer? Who is saying this? Who are making these comments about God's glory and power and work? It was Habakkuk, the same guy who at the beginning of the letter spent all his time complaining to God, complaining that God's ways of doing things weren't the proper ways, that his timing was wrong. And God responds to Habakkuk. He responds to his complaint. He tells him how he's going to bring judgment upon Judah. And Habakkuk doesn't like it. And then Habakkuk complains about that. Habakkuk seems to have some nerve and a lot of self-obsession to come at God the way that he does. But let's be real. He comes at God like all of us. God, how come you're not intervening? How come you're not a part of all this turmoil? God, why haven't you done this or that? Why are you letting this person be in power? God, why are you? Listen, none of us have the scope and the perspective of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in Jesus Christ. And we, like Habakkuk, ought 
if we are shaking our fist at God, we really do need to understand that God knows better than we do and that God is involved. And like Habakkuk, which it seems like he does in this chapter as he shares this prayer, we need to repent if we're mad at God for not doing things the way that we want him to do them. So let me take you back to verse 2 where he says these words, which I would contend that show that he truly has become remorseful and repentant. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. These are the words of a worshiper. One who sings his prayer to his God, knowing that God is worthy of all praise. I'm learning more and more as a man and a husband and a father that it's not about me. It's about loving, serving, and leading my family, which God has provided me. And as a son and a pastor, that it's not about me. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his glory being given to him for whatever I do, for whatever I say, I need to point the glory back to Jesus. So here's my question for you, church, as I conclude the sermon. It's simple, but it's difficult at the same time if you're not used to this. And so I'd encourage you to write it down and and maybe answer this question either in the takeaway call later today or send an email or a text to someone you know to say, here's how I'm going to answer this question. How is Jesus getting glory from your life right now? How is Jesus getting glory from your life right now? See, listen, you don't get to say he isn't because God gets glory even when we rebel and he must bring judgment. God gets glory when his character is made known from his word. God gets glory when we obey him at his word. God gets glory when we point people to him. God gets glory when reconciliation takes place. God gets glory when we care for others in the name of the Lord. God gets glory when we hate sin the way that he does And these are just a few examples. So how is Jesus getting glory from your life right now? You, Christian, a child adopted by God. Before this video is over, I have three things that I want to communicate and conclude with. We want to continue to encourage you to give towards the work of the kingdom of God through the people of COV. I was asked this week why we think that people across the nation seem to continue to give towards their churches, even though people aren't meeting in person. And we realize, honestly, and here was my answer, that we realize that giving isn't about giving to some organization, but it's about the heart of trusting God with everything, including our finances, which is an act of worship. So if you'd like to give financially, please send Uh, a check to the address on the screen, or you can go to covalley.com forward slash giving and, and you can pay via PayPal that way. Also, if you have a prayer request and you'd like the staff and elders and prayer team to pray, please send us your prayer request by emailing Robin Tillman at robin.tillman at covalley.com. And lastly, We're going to worship in a song. As this video concludes, if you're on the playlist, it'll just be the next thing that comes on. But if you're not on the playlist and you want to see what we're talking about, just click on the video that should be on this playlist. But this is a song that started to play on Apple Radio as I was writing the sermon. It almost sounded like he was singing the words that I was writing in the sermon. 
And this this song wasn't written by or wasn't written or recorded by anyone on our worship team. This is a song that's specifically written by a guy named Jonathan Trailer. And he wrote this during the pandemic. And as all the different things with uh, racism and protests have been happening and things have been happening, uh, he's been going through and experiencing the things that he has. And he wrote the song. And I just want you guys to either listen to it, but the video that we have will have lyrics on the screen or sing along. It is very easy to, to catch up to or, or to learn the lyrics. But I... I really hope that the time of worship in this song, and then as we conclude the playlist with more worship from our worship leaders, that this would give you a time to reflect and have a deeper understanding of everything that we are going through right now is not in vain. It is not without effect because God is involved and his ways are better than our ways. Love you guys.